0: grab your bibles turn to the gospel of john we're going to be in chapter six today we've been for those of you that are with us for the first time we've been chipping away at the gospel of john uh, since uh, late february and and so this is a great book of the bible um to, to learn about god but also to learn you know particularly about jesus john chapter six is going to be uh in 579 we have uh a few Bibles stacked underneath the middle aisle of seats, and if you don't have a Bible, you're willing to, you're welcome to grab one of those and read along, work through the scriptures with us as as we gather today. John chapter six. We're going to be um, looking at the first fifteen verses here this morning. Uh, our tradition is we read the scriptures out loud together, and so I welcome you to break out your smartphone, look at your hard copy Bible, or uh, or perhaps cheat and read off the screen like all of y'all are getting ready to do anyway. Creatures <laughs> a habit. All right, let's read together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw that the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're grateful for simple things this morning, for a beautiful day, uh, to be back in in this lecture hall, which uh, for us feels like home. We thank you for the provision uh, that you give us as a young church of, of Hayfield Secondary School. And, and, and we're grateful for the administrators that give us this space. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for the gathering of your church today. But more, more importantly, we're thankful for your word. May it be life and light to all of us today. Would you reach us where we are and with, with, through this simple narrative of, of Jesus uh, doing a, a great miracle, probably one of the greatest miracles that he ever did. Would you, would you open our eyes and, and give us ears to hear what you would have for us individually and corporately as a church today? And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, in the the likes of this passage, we're going to talk about miscommunication today. Miscommunication, all of you have done it. And miscommunication is nothing more than you saying something and the person on the opposite end perceiving exactly what you did not say or or vice versa. Um, And I would tell you in the in the advent of the era where everybody has one of these things, right, one of these smartphones, it's just so easy to do. And I think of, uh, you know, we don't. I don't even know why we call them cell phones. They're, they're really texting machines, and all the other things that you do with, uh, with a phone. I was talking to one of my sons who texts quite a bit. He's, he's very good at it. It's proficient. And uh, I asked myself, I, I mean, so have you ever called anybody on your phone? And the phone calls that he had received actually came from me and his mother. That, that's it. And all the other times, he's either playing a game or he's texting, 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 texting. Here's the deal with texting. The advent of texting has has made it such that we can be saying something and it be received absolutely differently on on the other side. Uh, You could be saying, hey, uh, John, looking forward to having lunch with you. Uh, but, But then you put one of those emoticons after it. You know, emoticons allow you to express yourself. Uh, Big smiley face or sad face or inquisition and now the emoticons have gotten so Complicated that you can actually put pictures of stuff like ships and donuts. I was I I participated in the National Donut Day like a crazy. I don't know what was got into me Uh, Jonathan performed Friday at the Lyceum downtown beautiful setting and you know I was a mile from the from sugar shack You know donut heaven and so I said, Jonathan, you want a donut? He said, yes. Can I have two? I said, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs> so we stood in this 30 minute. I mean, it was like a 50 person line, but I had to have a donut. And and, and so I don't even know where I'm going with this. Where am I going with this? Emoticons. Hey, All right. So I of course, I Facebooked it. I tweeted it. I put it on Instagram. Thank you, Tyler. And somebody had the nerve, they put a little smiley face, something else I couldn't discern, and a donut emoticon all in there applied to me. I was like, look at the world now. And so just check it out. If, if you were uh, having lunch with a friend and you text them just to make sure you're good to go, hey, looking forward to having lunch with you, smiley face. And uh, the, the person on the other end could actually interpret that as saying, looking forward to lunch with you, And I'm happy all the time. And they might just like get weirded out by that. It's like, I don't even know if I want to go eat lunch with this dude now because something is wrong with with how he's addressing me. We all can uh, miscommunicate. Uh, Misunderstanding, miscommunicating isn't limited to, to texting, though, even in face to face real life situations. We can make great mistakes in our communication. And that really is what we see happening in this passage today. Uh, Today, we're reading an account, a a narrative, a beautiful, beautiful narrative that that John, the evangelist, gives us of Jesus feeding 5000 people. He 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 had 5000 people sitting in his presence and Jesus is communicating something in, in all that he does and the few things that he says. And here's the deal they They totally missed what he was saying they didn 't get it at all, even those closest to him. This is another miracle, okay and so last two weeks ago uh, we we uh, embarked upon this series of miracles that that John chronicles throughout his 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 gospel. Uh, scholars tell us there are at least seven miracles john doesn 't use the word miracle. he chooses to use the word "sign" because a sign points to something other than itself, typically greater. And so if you keep in count, this is the fourth sign. The truth about miracles is this is what a miracle is supposed to do for you. I mean, when you when you hear about it, when you experience it, it's supposed to wow you. It's supposed to amaze you. Your, your jaw's supposed to drop and you're supposed to wonder how in the world has this come about? And what I think John forces us to ask in the midst of explaining what all that Jesus is doing here is is, he's he's, he's forcing us to ask, what if the miracles that Jesus were doing weren't simply just to wow us and amaze us? What if Jesus were actually saying something? What if Jesus was communicating something important about himself and about the world that we live in that he really wanted us to get? And in the midst of all that, he beckons us, to don't miss the point. Not just the crowd here that he's talking to, but to us here, 2,000 years later. Don't miss what I'm conveying to you. And that brings us to our text. Verse 1. So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. That's the, it's the same sea. It was just, uh, you know, after an, another Herod took over, they decided he wanted to name the sea a different name, Vanity. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountainside and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And so it's important. uh, John always gives us a setting. Uh, He's still ministering in Galilee. Galilee was the region of of Jesus home. It's, It's kind of where he lived. John 6, you know, there's several transitions in this gospel. Jesus is either transitioning from north to south or he's moving into a different phase of his ministry. And really, that is that's what's happening here. Um, He is going to be closing out the time that he'll spend in in Galilee. We'll see him spending a lot of his time just focused in on those those uh, particularly those 12 disciples that will become the apostles that will start the early church. And 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 really he's preparing them. For his his death on the on the cross and his resurrection so uh, another turning point uh, in this book verse two uh, tells us that a large crowd has has gathered and it's hard for us to discern from the biblical text exactly how many people this is um, as soon as Jesus started doing miracles back in John two I mean just the spectacle of it would have attracted some some people think about if something wild or weird or uh, you know just awe inspiring happens in our own culture we We want to go see it. The new mall opens up. we want to go there I mean like so so in Kingstown, the big news if there 's any news is uh, on Tuesday, Moe 's is opening up okay, and so it 's a spectacle there 's people going to show up if, if i weren 't busy I 'd go too because for the first fifty people, you get a free burrito for the rest I mean for the whole year. <laughs> And this weekend, Wegmans is going to show up. All right. So next Sunday, seven o'clock, Wegmans is opening up. Be a church, folks. (laughs) But but this is the deal. I mean, we show up to those kind of things because, I mean, they're spectacles. Right. And so this same thing is happening with Jesus. We know Jesus had close to uh, he had 12 disciples that sort of. Hung out with him and did everything with him. But as soon as you start uh, doing miracles, all these people start showing up into the thousands. And that's hard to believe. But I mean, he's got a lot of people following him. And I'm not just talking about Facebook friends or Instagram or Twitter followers. These people are like there to be there. They're following him, listening to his words, hanging out like, can I touch you, Jesus, kind of, of followers. Uh, I mean why are these people following Jesus? I think uh, you know a couple reasons. First it, it, it is a spectacle. They found him to be a miracle working person and they wanted to see what he was going to do next. There were some that um that recognized he was a rabbi and a teacher and they wanted to hear the things coming out of his mouth because they were edified by him. They were stirred by it. There's something going on with this man. I just love hearing what he has to say. Um the 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 text helps us to assume that there are sick people. They knew he could heal and they're following him because they want to get well. They just want to get up near to him. Maybe he'll reach his hand out and and touch me or say some blessing over us that will heal us. I mean, I would imagine that there are family members and friends who are carrying sick persons on litters or over their back or helping them like a crutch. So they can just get close to Jesus in the the likes that he might get healed. And then, I mean, there's there's spectacles. I mean, there's there's uh, skeptics there and the skeptic just I mean, they don't believe any of it. But they just want to see it for themselves to to see if it's true and figure out what how they're going to orient their life based upon all that stuff that's going on. The last thing that John tells us is this is the Passover and. That's that's particularly interesting because John chronicalizes, uh, is that a word? Chronicalizes Jesus' life by telling us the, the Passovers that he's he's experiencing as he's going through his ministry. The first was in John 2. This is the second Passover that we see Jesus's, Jesus Jesus uh, uh, worshiping through. And then we'll see another one in, in John 11. And then Jesus, I mean, a few chapters later, but really a short amount of time, Jesus dies. And so that, how do we know Jesus lived? His, his, his ministry lasted about three, three and a half years, because in John, he, he shows us three Passovers and it's one Passover a year. That the chronology is important. What's important about the Passover is that that I mean, that was one of the major Jewish feasts. It's when they all came typically to Jerusalem. This is the first time that we'll see Jesus staying in Galilee, celebrating the Passover. But the importance of the Passover is, is what it stood for. It was it was a recognition, a celebration of God saving the Jews out of out of Egypt. It was it was God's uh, command to them to take an innocent lamb, to to slaughter it, to take its blood and smear it over your door. And if you did that, it would keep your firstborn alive. But more importantly, it would be the symbol that that God had saved you. And in their midst, they had the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world and who ultimately was the only one that could save them. Obviously, there's some semblance there. Verse five. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, "There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many?" And so John gives us a picture of of two disciples and their you know their response to what's going on. And the first that we see is is Philip, and it's important that Jesus mention, mentions Philip first because Philip was one of the he was one of the first of the first. If you go back to John chapter one, just look for Philip's name and you'll see that Philip was. I mean, when it said when your your heading says Jesus calls his disciples, Philip is one of the very first ones that he calls. And so Philip would have been he would have had a front row seat to everything that Jesus had done up to this point. Philip would have. Uh, been in the in the mix when Jesus and John the Baptist were transitioning. Philip would have been right in the mix, you know, sitting down enjoying himself, drinking some wine. When Jesus at Cana turned that water into wine, Philip would have been standing right by Jesus as he rebuked ne- uh, uh, Nicodemus, telling him, "Nicodemus, you're smart, you're a rabbi, and all that, but you got to get born again." Philip would have been um, in Cana when the royal official came from Capernaum. And asked Jesus to, to heal his son. And he saw this, the the, very, uh, the second miracle of Jesus, 21 miles away, just speaking a word and, and healing this man's son who was near death. Peter would have been with Jesus when he came to the sheep gate and saw a man who had been an invalid for 40 years, 38 years. And Jesus passed all these other people and for some reason selects this one and says, hey. Get up, and he would see him get up. And I mean, can you imagine that? Peter has uh, Philip. Philip has seen all these things, and so, verse five, Jesus turns to Philip, and really, the scene here is reminiscent of Moses with the the Israelites in the wilderness, and the uh, the, the Israelites are bickering and complaining. They've come. They they've left their leeks and their onions and all their food they had in Egypt, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, and they have no water, and they have nothing to eat, and they're saying, Moses, feed us. Tell this God that you serve to feed us. And Moses comes to God and asks, Lord, where am I going to get meat to feed all these people? That's that's the kind of setting that Jesus is reenacting here with with Philip. And, and we see Philip's response. Jesus basically says to Philip, all right, so Philip, there's a lot of people here, dude. I don't know where they came from, but we're out in the middle of nowhere. What are, you, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to feed them? And the notion is Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's going to do a miracle. I think he's testing Philip to see what Philip knows about Jesus. And Philip responds. He said, Lord, we only have enough money for Taco Bell. I mean, honestly, and even if we went a couple Taco Bells, they wouldn't have enough beans to feed this group of people. You know what I think? I, I think these people are on their own. Yes, me and you go get something to eat, and they can fend for themselves. Philip basically says, "No, I don't think there's anything that we can do." And of course, because we we we're reading the narrative, I mean, we're, we're automatically thinking, "Oh, Philip, you're stupid. You got Jesus right by you." You saw him do all these great things and you have you don't have the foresight to believe that this same Jesus who did all these other things, healing and miracles, and all this stuff, can't just simply make some food turn up. Before you criticize Philip, there's there's actually one other disciple here and the other disciples, Andrew. Andrew gets tested as well. And Andrew is mentioned because he has longevity with Jesus as well. Andrew is it's mentioned as one of John the Baptist's disciples he's the the very, uh, very first one mentioned and so when Jesus is at the uh, when John the Baptist is at the Jordan and he's looking and he's and he sees Jesus and he says hey the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world the, the text says there's two disciples that hear this and they immediately uh, start chasing Jesus Andrew was one of them Andrew was connected to Philip because they both were from Bethsaida and so, I mean, they, there's this close-knit people, close-knit group of people that are, are just attracted to Jesus. And so uh, Jesus, uh, just like Jesus came to Philip, uh, Andrew must have been near. And so what, what Andrew does is, is he sneaks out. He goes, like, through the, uh, scowling through the crowd, and he finds a boy. We don't know anything about the boy except that this boy had five barley loaves of bread And and two small fish. All right. The fish were like probably like sardines, but probably a dry type. So he could carry them around for days on end and and not have them mold or or, or turn bad. But the, the barley was was significant. Firstly, Elijah did a miracle back in the Old Testament of of taking a little bit of barley and feeding miraculously over 100 prophets that were that were hidden in a cave somewhere. And so the likes of what Jesus is doing is there's always Old Testament semblance to what Jesus is doing. Um, Interestingly, for me, barley was com- it was com- uh, food for commoners. Uh, only those who were very poor uh, and had nothing else to eat made bread out of barley. Everybody else would have made it out of out of wheat, just like we do today. And and for those of you who are gluten free, barley bread was the absolute perfect thing if you ha- if you needed a gluten uh, gluten free diet. So there you go. It's in the Bible. We should all be gluten free, and so. Andrew has the wherewithal to go and find some food. But this is what he comes back and he says, he's like, ah, Jesus, I, here it is. This is boy had his little bit of fish, a little fish and some some barley loaves. And uh, he's welcome. He's giving it to us. But I mean, what can what in the world can we do with this? So put yourself in the scene and, and and you decide which response would you have? Would you do what Philip did and, and, and say, uh, I mean, Jesus, all these people, I mean, what do you want me to do? Or would you be like Andrew, who had the perspective of, all right, I, I got a little bit, but this ain't going to go too far for any of us. I mean, I think we're doomed. What Jesus is inviting these disciples to, what what he's asking both of them to see is that they, I mean, they have Their their need is to trust him. They've seen enough of him that they at this point should be able to trust him. And it likens uh, into our lives. How many of us say, God, if you show me a miracle, I'll believe if you give me a sign, I'll do whatever you ask. But the truth is here, as it as it was then, that God does all these incredible things in front of us all the time. In fact, he does them all. All around the world, if we brought in missionaries from all around the world, we hear these incredible things about what God is doing and he does them over and over again. And the point that Jesus is making with these two is really the point that that I'm making with you now. Miracles and wonders aren't enough. They're never enough. The spectacle of of something that's awe inspiring isn't enough. It wasn't enough for them. It's not enough for us today. Because we see the miracle, we, we drop our jaw and we wonder at it, but the miracle doesn't do enough to reconcile us to God. There has to be another step. And so what Jesus is inviting us, all of us to do, as he was, Philip and Andrew, is to see beyond seeing, is to believe and let the belief be the fuel for, your, for what you see. It's important, it's important to see how Jesus responds here. He doesn't flip out on Philip and Andrew. But he does do a miracle. Verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their full, eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled them, uh, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And so all these people were already following Jesus because they knew he could heal. I mean, what, do you, what, what effect do you think it had on them when they also found out not only does he heal, I mean, this dude can just produce food whenever we need it. I mean, it's a spectacle, right? It's like I'm definitely following Jesus now. I mean, I'm going to like tether myself to him. I wasn't sick at first. I was just following along because I wanted to see what he was going to do next. But I was hungry and this man has given me a belly full. I'm all on Jesus side. Verse 10 says there was 5000 men. There were likely two or three times as many people there the, 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 the scriptures oftentimes uh, uh, disregard the women and the children there. And so if every man or if every other man had a wife and a couple of kids, there could have been there could have been at least 10 to 15,000, some even say uh, 20,000 people there. And so uh, all of you here in the room that are like mathematicians, I mean, you do the math. So Jesus takes five barley loaves and two fish. He takes just the bread. He lifts it up. He blesses it. Give thanks for it. And he distributes it. It says here that Jesus gives it out and then he gives out the fish as many as they want. In other uh, this is the only miracle that's duplicated in all four gospel accounts. And so it is it, significant. And in, in, in the other gospel accounts, it says Jesus handed it to his disciples and they distributed it. E- either way, somewhere the miracle happened. I don't know if it happened as, as he was lifting it up and, and blessing it or if as they were pulling it out of the basket. We aren't told those kind of details. But I, voila, there's like food for food for thousands. The, the ultimate uh, buffet banquet. There's a, that's a lot of food. And of course, this is a great miracle. You know, it would be easy to come away with this this miracle with thoughts of uh, I'm OK. So Jesus did this great miracle of feeding people who were very needy and they're out in the middle of nowhere. I'm supposed to feed the poor. And, and that might be an implication. But that's not the implication. Jesus wants you to get out of this. We could come away from this saying Jesus wants us to have the right view of the Lord's Supper. Because there's the semblance of of God is supplying our need and communion as as along with being a a picture of of the the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. It it shows us that God is he satisfies us in a myriad of ways. And that's an accurate picture. But that's not what Jesus wants you to get out of this out of this text necessarily either. The text is asking us what is what's the real miracle? I, I know Jesus just took bread and fish and multiplied it, just like a little bitty boy's lunch, a, a little, a, it's like a happy meal. He took a happy meal and multiplied it so 20,000 people could have uh, a, a buffet dinner as much as they wanted. But here's the real miracle. Jesus took a pathetic meal and turned it into something incredible. That, that's one thought. Or Jesus took, uh, he took two uh, pathetic guys and use them to show the awesome power of God. You could take either one of those that you that you want to use. In, in any case, he did a miracle right in their midst. How did these disciples' lack of trust or faith affect Jesus' willingness to do the miracle? N- not at all. Jesus was still willing to do the miracle. And I think one of the most important implications of this text is Jesus isn't looking for disciples that have uh, a Herculean super faith that never doubts. And, and so I hope you hear the text saying to you, you never have to be the type of Christian and, and definitely we will never be the type of church that you have to get it all right. And that you have to have perfect faith before God comes to you and receives you and accepts you and loves you and and, and satisfies your need. It's OK to, to not have every minute of your life be happy and, and swell. You ever met those kind of people that you meet them and say, hey, brother, how you doing? Oh um, I'm doing great. You're doing great. I'm doing great, too. All right. Well, great. Great. Praise the Lord. I mean, you think that's real? Sometimes it is. And we meet people that just life, it goes well for them. But it, it actually is OK for things not to be OK every once in a while. You can't stay there, but it's OK for life not to be. Okay, And so if if we were grading Philip and Andrew, Andrew got an F. He just like, he, Andrew knew enough, um, Philip Philip knew enough about Peter, Uh, what am I, um, Philip knew enough about Jesus that he should have had faith and trust in what Jesus could do at this point, F. At best, Andrew got a high zero, if we're grading on a scale of zero to 10. (laughs) At West Point, when I was a cadet, uh, a plebe, um, we had like four different physical education classes. And in, in particular, gymnastics, you had to do some crazy stuff. Like they expect you to do a perfect cartwheel and back bends and jump on a trampoline and do flips and stuff. I don't know where they thought we came from, all right? So I had never done any of that in my life. And so one time, the instructor gave me a high zero. Like that's out of 10. A high zero on a cartwheel. Yeah, absolutely. So. So Andrew here gets a, a high zero. Philip failed. Andrew presented a pathetic answer to the problem. But but here's the real question. Will we be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life? Will, will we let our problems overwhelm us or will we trust in the presence of Jesus in our lives? I can give you many examples from my own life. You're probably thinking of some now uh, whereby just life kind of overwhelms us or it has the propensity to do that. But just ask yourself, what rough stuff shows up in your life that you just let overtake you and overwhelm you? And and you you have a choice in how you respond. Will you get angry at God? Will you be in despair? I think you have two choices. Either you assume yourself the, the, the victim or you trust God and his will for your life. Jesus looks at us like he does Philip and Andrew in this passage, and he invites us to trust him. He says, hey, guys, tr- trust me. Give me your little faith. Give me your pathetic resources. Even give me your mixed motive. And what we should see here is when Jesus is in charge of the situation, it doesn't matter what the resources are. You can give him little to no resources. And Jesus, because of who he is, is going to be able to take what you bring to him and make something of it, and so when we think of this story, the the, the whole thing from beginning in, and, and Jesus and his intentions behind doing the miracle, but also pointing them to something else. I, I hope you see that. Firstly, this is a, this is a pretty incredible miracle. It seems pretty simple. They just show up. There's a little bit of food. They have no food. A little bit of food that somebody has, and then voila, he he turns it into something miraculous. All these people. I mean, that's just it's just a great miracle. But what I think is important for us to see is the people that were there and they see all this unfolding. I mean, they actually they don't see they don't see what they should see. And that is the essence of of miscommunication. They have all this stuff unfolding before them. And Jesus is offering them to trust him, but they they simply can't see it. And and they don't do it. Let's finish the the story up. Verse 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, he said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so that the end of the story tells us that these people had gotten their fill, they had seen enough of the miracle that they were going to follow Jesus and they knew enough about the old testament that they were going to that they they said you know what isn't there a story about uh in, in Moses about a prophet coming and and trumping all other prophets that they were thinking you know what we're going to take this this might be the guy in fact this might be the king that we've been waiting for of course the jews for thousands of years have been waiting for uh, of, of course, a prophet that would come in the likes of Moses, but also they're coming. They're looking for a warrior king that would overthrow all of their oppressors. And at this point, they're still being over. Uh, they're being oppressed by the, the Roman government. And then when they see Jesus miracles, when they see his wisdom and when they see the the persona of who he is, they say this must be the guy. But what does Jesus do? The text tells us that Jesus withdraws. I mean, he just escapes it all. And I think again here's the essence of, of miscommunication. The crowd sees Jesus' power, but this naturally translates for them into what can this guy do for me and I would tell you in our natural world, a lot of times we do that with like with with bosses and employee pl- employers and and political candidates we're entering another political season and and for, for forgive how I say this, sometimes we pimp ourselves to whoever can um, Provide us the most. I mean, every candidate is going to stand up and say, hey, I'm going to create more jobs. Uh, I'm going to give uh, allow the middle class to keep more of their money so that in the end, all of us can achieve the American dream. And whoever says that the most passionately, we're going to give them our vote. We're we're making them our king. The same thing really was happening here. I mean, the. In all that the Jews were expecting, they wanted Jesus to come and make everything right for them. And in the same way they misunderstood Jesus in their day, we misunderstand him in our day as well. And I think it's like uh, those of you that are from Pentecost or charismatic backgrounds, I am from that background. And so I'm not making fun. I'm just telling you what we do. Uh, A lot of times we we cherish the gift all the all the, the, the great things that God lets us see into and do and say and speak. But we we forget that behind the gift is a, is a giver. There's someone that gives us the gift. And so here they were looking at the things that Jesus could do for them. They were looking looking to the food, the gift that he gave, but they didn't see that it came from it came from Jesus himself. And then when, when this happens, we actually add ultimatums. We say, well, all right, so we know he can do that. So if if, if Jesus, if you do this for me, you can be my king. Or we might say, if you don't do this to, for me, you can't be my king. And think of all the areas of your life that you might do that in. If you're single and you want a spouse, it's like, all right, so Jesus, give me a spouse and you can be my king. Or if you're, you're, you're barren and you want kids, Jesus uh, give me some kids, open my womb, do whatever you got to do, give me some kids. Or if you want a raise, Jesus, give me a raise, then you can be my king. Or if, if this just, you got financial difficulty, Lord, turn my poverty into, into something greater than itself, and then you can be my king. On and on and on, we do that in, in all areas of our life. And so Jesus looks at us, and here's his reply. He says, I'm the bread. I'm the gift that you're seeking. The second implication of this text is the greatest thing that Jesus has to offer us is, is Jesus. The greatest thing that Jesus has to give us is himself. You see, the, the people in that crowd, they would continue to follow Jesus. Uh, in the very next section, they follow him on the other side, of the Sea of, of Galilee, the Sea of Tiber- Tiberias. And they continue to ask him to be their king. And later in John chapter six, verse thirty five, Jesus will say these great words. He'll say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I don't know if you ever noticed this. Those of you that eat bread. But here's the thing that happens when you eat bread. You eat it. You chew it. It goes down. It fills your belly, but then you digest it. And for some of you, minutes later, you're hungry again. For the rest of us, you know, an hour or so before our next meal, we're we're feeling those hunger pangs that tells us it's time to eat again. And that's the way it is with anything that wasn't meant to fully satisfy you eternally. I think of all the things in my life and and in your life that have these happy time expiration dates on them. It's like they, they were only supposed to be. Uh, good for you for a limited amount of time they, they weren 't meant to continually fill you up, and that really is what food is 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 supposed to do for you and These people completely miss that. I think of the couple that move into a new neighborhood um, they love the neighborhood they they like the house they 've chosen for themselves, but they love the ch- the house next door and so they wait a little bit of time and the family moves out and they leave this house and go into the, the the house they love, and as soon as they start living in that house, I mean, it's like a hotel. It's like silk sheets. I mean, that's the way they feel. Silk sheets, and it feels like I mean, it's, this is what we've always wanted. And they only stay in there for a few months, and all of a sudden they realize, uh-oh, there's things wrong with their house. Like the windows are stuck. We got a swamp cooler, so it's hot. Oh, we got a septic tank and it's overflowing now. What do we do? The good times eventually come to an end. The things that make us excited fade away. At some point, they don't make us excited anymore. And so here's the offer. Jesus is offering us to acknowledge the, the amazing wonder of the miracle that he's done. It's a miracle. We're supposed to have our mouths wide open. So like, ah. How in the world did he do that? But more importantly, he's inviting us to to look behind it. And that really is the purpose of a sign. This is the fourth sign. And so there's this big marker that says, check it out. There's something going on here that's going to blow your mind. But once you read the sign, it's pointing you to something else. And guess what the something else is? It's the it's the mighty wonder working power of Jesus, And all that he can give you, not for a moment, but for eternity. Jesus provided for a a true basic need here in this text. But ultimately, he offers himself. And this is what you get when you get Jesus. You get the son of God who came down to earth, who made his dwelling with us. And what he offers is to give us not just the, the gift of Uh, Bread that will fill our belly, but bread that will that will sustain us forever. And so I would encourage you, don't don't seek gifts that last only for a little bit of time. Seek the gift that lasts you forever. Jesus comes and he doesn't come in a box, but he comes in the form of a man who uh, who satisfies you with with joy. A joy that can go deeper than a little happy meal. And so the tendency for us is to to worship all those things in our life that are here and present. Our cars, our houses, our kids, all the stuff that we have. And Jesus came uh, to save us. He came to give us more than even what we reckon for. And that should be good news to us. And so his invitation is direct your worship, not on the not on the presenting sign, but what the sign represents. So my exhortation to you would be let's look beyond the gift that Jesus provides and let's receive him as the gift. If you're a a non-Christian here today and you would recognize that a lot of the things that you that you chase in your life uh, have left you wanting, that they haven't satisfied. Then your response would be try Jesus, because Scripture tells us that he has bread. He is the bread. And his bread always satisfies, and for those of you that are Christians here today, one of the things that we do as we um, respond to our service is we do communion every week and communion is a picture of the gospel the 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 life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus and as you take that bread, re- remind yourself that you are participating in the 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 miraculous Son of God who gave himself for you and gives you. Everlasting life. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for your word that endures. Thank you for a picture of your sustaining power in our life, Lord. It would be easy to to come come to this miracle and see it as a, I mean, even to bypass it. Sometimes. Um, Miracles are too close to us, and it, it causes us almost like the skeptic to, dis, uh, to disregard them. Uh, help us not to do that. We pray that you would give us eyes of faith, that we would see beyond the sign to the gift that not just the gift that you bring, but the gift that you are. Help us to receive Jesus and respond rightly to him. Lord, we're reminded that you don't need us to have great faith, that you allow us to come with just a, a mustard seed of faith. And that's comforting to many of us. And so as we bring to you um, our unfailing ability to, to have faith in you, and as we bring to you the, 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 pathetic, the pathetic nature of even our own lives, would you take it? Would you bless it? Would you give thanks to God the Father for it, and would you multiply it for our good? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.